Yeah, there we go. We're, <laughs> yes, we We're are on. Officially. Talking on our <laughs> podcast, and this is episode 24, Ooh, actually. 24. I know, that's I amazing. Like episode 24 of Inherently Human. My name is Aiden DeBorn. My name is Jim Newman, and we have to allow that one reason we think our podcast is of general interest <laughs> is that we have a differential here in terms of age, in terms of decades between us, really. Oh, five of them, to be uh, exact. I'm currently 21. <laughs> yes, you are gradually coming up, but you're <laughs> not going to catch up with me uh, because I, you turned 21, and I don't know, it was just a couple of weeks before that, I turned 73. Yep. It was, we had a, uh, a 53-year difference for a brief moment, yeah. and then we cut it back down to 52. We got to keep that... Uh, I feel more <laughs> secure. I feel more <laughs> secure when I realize the uh, gap is a little bit narrower <laughs> than it otherwise would be. I actually haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it's and, been quite a few. Uh, I don't know. It seems like you've been really busy, man. Yeah. Um, so within these past couple weeks, it's been finals week and spring break has started and uh i've been working and i just recently taught a lifeguard course um my very first really official lifeguard course uh was that at portland state that was at portland state we had a lot of great people come through and i'm very proud of all the new guards that we have certified Interestingly, I observed some of the training. I think Marcos was, that is Marcos, who manages the uh, pool system, mm -hmm. yep. was teaching the course when I was in the pool doing my resistance training. Was this sometime this week? It was week? this week, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's actually teaching an LGI course. What's that? So LGI is lifeguard instructor. And mm -hmm. that's the certification you need to teach the lifeguard courses. Oh, yeah, I see. So he's okay. he, right now he's teaching the teachers. Yes. And the <laughs> I, there's always these levels of teaching that I always find super funny, especially within the American Red Cross, um, because, for example, there are the lifeguards, then right. there's the LGIs, then there's the LGITs. And then there's the people who teach them. And then at that point, there's a conspiracy as to who teaches the teachers who teach the teachers who teach. The oh, teachers. my God. What a web, <laughs> yeah. a web of complexity. Right. Um, do you think, though, it actually serves the purpose of keeping people safe ultimately while they're swimming? Because uh, all of this expertise, I guess the intention is for it all to somehow filter down to the people who are standing at the edge of the pool mm -hmm. watching with hawk eyes as people in the pool are swimming back and forth uh, hoping as they observe the people in the pool that nothing goes wrong and they don't have to click into action but they're able Mm -hmm. to click into action yeah. because they have been taught. <laughs> They've been relentlessly trained over years. Um, but in my experience personally, uh, I haven't had any instances where these several tiers of training led to a disaster of some sort. 
Um, but you know, there's evidence of mistakes everywhere. So, well, I mean, maybe so, but, uh, what Marcos was teaching was, I think artificial respiration. I didn't go over Mm -hmm. and talk to them, but it looked like they had a baby. Oh yeah. They had a little baby. Uh, I'm mannequin. Sure it was yeah, a mannequin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not a real Actual baby. It's child. a doll. <laughs> and the doll is not the kind you buy in a toy store, no, I imagine. They are much more expensive. <laughs> and uh, tell me the particulars of the design of uh, uh, a, what did you call it? A mannequin? Um, yes, a mannequin. Yeah. So the baby mannequins uh, in particular, standard baby size. I don't know yeah. how big a child is, uh, and I know that varies a lot. Sure. But they have artificial lungs, which is just like this plastic bag that you put under the skin of the baby, if you will. It comes off, and you put this bag through its mouth, and it's <laughs> it sounds weird as I say it out loud, um, but it's just this paper, or not paper, plastic bag you put under the skin, out the mouth, uh, and then you hook it in. So when the guards who are training uh, give these respirations, give the breaths to the child, you can actually physically see the chest rising if the breaths are going through effectively. Um, And that's to train guards to do effective breathing, uh, sealing the mask, tilting the head, keeping it neutral. There's a whole mess of things that you need to do and make sure is happening and this is the best way to let that happen. I wonder, do um, these mannequins have instrumentation in them somehow so that an instructor can see just exactly how well a student is doing? Or mm-hmm. is, it is yeah. that way, huh? So uh, on these mannequins that we've bought recently, these are not the most up-to-date mannequins, but it's the most up-to-date we have. Um so what they have is that they have this little sensor in the chest. Yeah. And on the adult ones, they have lights on the on the shoulder and on the infant ones I I hate it, but it's it's right right on the crotch. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where the on button is, so it's it's I really hate using those. Um but there's little lights that show how well you're doing uh compressions. And it'll tell you if you're going deep enough. It'll tell you if you're going too fast or too slow, whether or not your compressions are good enough. And then we as the instructors can see that and uh, let the participant, the one who is training, know exactly what they need to be doing. Um, And then if the breaths aren't going in or if that's incorrect, we'll see that the chest isn't rising because the lung that's in there isn't inflating. Um, and so we've got a whole series of systems with just these little mannequins that can tell us everything we need to about effective CPR. And whether or not the person is actually effectively saving a life. Yeah, exactly. Can, can you remember back when you were the student and not the teacher? I imagine there'd be a lot of tension involved in that challenge uh, even though it's artificial and no mm-hmm. one's really at risk, nevertheless, in terms of that experience, you're being judged on whether you can save, save a life, life or not. And it, it's hard. It really it puts a lot of pressure on you. Um, 
And it's even harder. Well, I guess it's a lot easier the more I think about it. Knowing that the life that you are quote unquote saving isn't real. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of times that doesn't give the right amount of adrenaline or panic that would normally go into someone's normal human reaction when responding to this kind of thing. I would think not. I mean, look, I think that the noise in a person's head, if they really knew that another individual's life is on the line Mm -hmm. and they themselves are the only people that are standing between that other individual's death survival yeah yeah them able to survive <laughs> i mean uh, functioning in that kind of situation is it, something i can't imagine it's hard and uh i've never encountered an a situation in which someone's life was on the line such as cpr or respiratory breathing like any of that I've made my fair share of water rescues. Um, yeah, right. But I feel like the stakes in that case are much lower, um, especially since the victim, if you will, was conscious and there were other guards around me who could have also responded to this situation. Um, and then I also had plenty of time to reach the victim, extricate them, do everything I needed to do while they're still conscious and breathing. As soon as that stops is when uh, this kind of like fight or flight adrenaline starts super kicking in. And you have to focus anyway. I yeah. mean, you cannot afford to let your mind drift, even though I'm sure the chemicals in your brain are generating almost intolerable noise. I oh, think. yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's, you know, you're early into this and yeah. it's your training really hasn't been solidified yet. Um, I'd be curious to ask people like EMTs and paramedics to see how they feel and whether their first time they froze up or if there was such a shot of adrenaline that something went wrong that wasn't supposed to. Um, Because I know with lifeguards, especially when they make their first active rescue, a lot of times it's sloppy. Um, we train our lifeguards to activate, uh, emergency action plan, which is, uh, done by doing X amount of whistles, depending on your facility, jumping in, making the appropriate, uh, entrance, and then making the appropriate rescue for the victim at hand. And what happens a lot of the times, and this was very evident at my last pool that I worked at, um, where people would jump in the water without alerting anybody all right so they would see someone struggling in the water Mm -hmm. they know that they're supposed to save that person but before anything else happens they're supposed to signal all of the other lifeguards on duty that there's a problem that's the whistling part yep and they forget that because the adrenaline's going and they jump in the water is that what happens they have absolute total focus and Uh, at points like that where, you know, you're new at this and adrenaline is pumping and this can go for anything, really. You're so focused on the objective that the process starts to break down. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of time or with the American Red Cross, there's a kind of a saying with all the teachers and it's 
we're going to train to the standard, um, but test to the objective. And so what that means is with lifeguards or CPR, anything like that, we're going to train people to the book. We're going to tell them exactly what we want to see, and we're going to make sure that we're training them exactly how American Red Cross has laid out for us. But, right, that's the book. Yeah, so that's trained to the standard. Yeah. Test to the objective is allowing human error, essentially. And so if you complete the objective, but the process was a little bit wonky... And that, well, most of the time, that's isn't that right? Yeah. Most of the time, people don't do it perfectly. Exactly. And so, test to the objective. Did they meet exactly what they were supposed to? Yeah. If it's yes and they did it in a weird way, there's nothing we can do. They did it. They did it their way. And I really appreciate the American Red Cross for allowing us to do that. Um, but... For example, in this lifeguard course that I just taught, um, we have a certain rescue called a deep water passive submerged. <laughs> so the person uh, who needs to be rescued is mm -hmm. unconscious. Yep. Okay. They're underwater effectively. Yep. And then what do you do? You grab them under the arm or something and lift them out of the... What happens? You tell me. You're actually really close. That's okay. exactly what we do. Um, so we go down, we grab the victim, we wrap an arm around them, and our lifeguard tube, that big red thing with the rope, um, we grab it with our free hand. Uh, we grab the rope and we start bunching it up in the hand that is around the victim. And we allow the lifeguard tube to pull us up. And before you hit the surface of the water, what you're supposed to do is that you're supposed to grab the lifeguard tube, put it between you and the victim, and then open up their airway and then get them to the side. When you're in 13 feet of water, when right. I learned this, uh, it's a lot easier. Your margin of error is huge. You have 13 feet to get the tube down and then between you and your victim. At the PSU pool, we only go up to seven feet. And so a lot of the ropes and a lot of the lifeguard tubes are like seven, eight feet long with the rope. And so you are not given a lot of time to pull down this tube, put it between you and your victim, and then get to the wall, you know? Yeah. And so what happens is that... Uh, Lifeguards will just bring the victim up without the tube and just use their own personal buoyancy and treading power to keep their victim up so they can grab the tube and then put it between them and the victim. And so that's part of testing to the objective because the standard is that they have the tube between them and whoever they're rescuing before they even hit the water or before they hit the surface of the water. Right, but you can't do that if it's seven feet as opposed yeah. to almost twice as deep, right? Exactly, and yeah. so it's just, it's significantly harder to do something like that. So we're giving them the opportunity to pull the victim out, and so long as the airway, the mouth, uh, clears the water and doesn't go back in, if they didn't use a tube at all for that... You're good. But yeah, that's fine. Because you have effectively met the objective, despite it not being part of the quote-unquote standard. 
You know, the only time that I was in a situation where there was, I think, a general idea that something had to be done to try mm-hmm. to save someone oh, okay. was yeah. uh, over by Steens Mountain in southeastern Oregon. There was an ultralight fly-in, those little handmade aircraft that are really just pipe and uh, fittings and uh, a little lawnmower kind of motor, seemingly. Those are mostly uh, gliders, aren't they? Well, no, they're a different kind of aircraft, and they <laughs> actually are under their own power. And there was a, a fly-in, but there was a another airplane out on the desert that was doing so-called stalls, mm. where the person would slow the aircraft, and this was a single-engine fixed-wing normal airplane, Uh, he'd slow the aircraft so that it would start to drop out of the sky because it didn't have enough forward motion to keep it in the air. And then he'd pick up speed as he was effectively falling in the aircraft, and then at the last moment uh, above the floor of the desert... He'd have enough speed to swoop up, up, and yeah. he'd be in the air again. Well, he misjudged, and he dropped right flat onto the floor of the desert. There was a popping sound. He was a little ways away from us, and no one, of course, had expected that this thing would happen. I remember the level of confusion as we saw this augured in aircraft that was something like 300 yards from us. Mm-hmm. And everyone, to a man, thought we've got to help this person. Yeah. And, well, number one, we're way away from them. And two, we're a little afraid because we, I think, I felt like maybe that aircraft's going to explode now. We don't know. And also... When we got there, we wouldn't have a clue uh, how to to rescue that person. So it seems like what you are giving people is at least the gift of some way in a a very stressful situation where life and death is the issue, Mm -hmm. where there's something that you can do, you know, to perhaps mitigate the situation. I don't know if uh, <laughs> my lifeguards would be capable of handling someone who crashed a plane, personally. No, probably not, really. But, um, I don't know, it might give them a little more confidence to at least try. It's it's hard when... Are you familiar with the Good Samaritan Law? Um, I don't think so, although the name suggests that everyone is obligated in some way to try to extend aid if someone's in trouble? Is that the Good Samaritan Law? It's, it's, it's oh, close. Oh, tell me. Yeah, because so, I don't know. <laughs> that was a good guess, though. Yeah. Um, so the Good Samaritan Law is something that's put in place to protect the people who willingly try to give aid to people. Right. Um, so, but there are clauses in it. And so if you're off duty you're not being paid by anybody to respond to something um and you choose not to respond then you are protected under the good samaritan because you're not obligated 
to respond if you don't want to. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And so if you do choose to respond, um, you can only do things that are within your personal training. Only if you have proof that you have done X training before are you protected under Good Samaritan. And so what happens a lot is people who are like first aid trained who believe that they can do more than what they're actually trained for. And as soon as they go over their certification level, then it's no, they're no longer protected. And it's kind of a sad thing wow. to think about. Okay. So you put yourself at risk, mm-hmm. even though you are on the side of the angels in terms of your intent, your intuition says, I got to help. Yeah. And I know I can to some extent, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of, I don't know how to feel about needing that law to be put in place. You know, it's why, why punish the people who try to help? You know, but I also understand if someone tries to help who are way in over their head and end up making a situation worse. Right. I mean, there's obviously some punishment that should kind of come out. I don't know. Well, I don't know if punishment is the right word for that, because it's it's hard to punish someone who just has good intentions. I think it's advocates for the victim in the situation Mm -hmm. trying to come up with the way to compensate that victim. It's not so much about punishment. It's Mm -hmm. looking for the pockets that have the resources to provide compensation. And who other than the individual who, yes, tried to help, but they turned out to be a real rookie. They didn't have mm-hmm. anything like the skill they would have needed to really help. And in fact, let's say, um, broke the person's neck or right. something like that instead. So, Do you um, think that the Good Samaritan Law is put in place not only to protect those who help, but those who are the victims? Yeah, well, I would say so. I mean, they're really in some way mm-hmm. trying as I say, to come up with a way to compensate a person who has been doubly injured. Right. Let's say someone was hit by a car Mm -hmm. and then a good Samaritan or a would-be good Samaritan comes up and moves them and they're paralyzed because this individual didn't know how to handle the body in such a way that it didn't sever the central nervous system or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know. And... It's interesting that you kind of bring that up with uh, hurting someone further, trying to move them from something. The Good Samaritan also protects people uh, with kind of the life over limb clause. What's that? So in lifeguarding, for example, um, if there's a spinal victim, so someone hurt their head, neck, or spine in any capacity... We have a process where we put them onto the backboard, we strap them in, we put headpieces on, we slowly extricate. It's this whole thing. Um, Unless we identify the victim is not breathing. And so, therefore, we would say, screw it, to all of the straps and the headboards, and we would just pull them out of the water as fast as we could. Because at this point, we are prioritizing their survival over their ability to 
walk. And you're you are protected when you do that. Then, mm-hmm. absolutely. And again, what's that called? The Good Samaritan Law or no, Life Over Limb? The Life Over Limb mm-hmm. aspect of the Good Samaritan Clause. Yeah, and so at least that's how it is with guarding. You're supposed to, uh, you know, save a person's life even if it does hurt them. Yeah. Uh, for example, what we teach lifeguards is reasons to move a body, which is kind of coming back to the, the car crash scenario that you've put out for us. Um, if the scene is going to be or is unsafe for the victim to be in, then you are given full right to move the victim away from that even if it means it might hurt them. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, you know, there's someone in this car crash and there's fire somewhere, you know, leaky gas, a spark somewhere. And if you don't move this victim, then they're guaranteed, you know, to die in this this fire. But if you hurt them trying to move them away from it, then you are at least to my understanding, protected. You know, I uh, have a physical trainer, Tommy, who is uh, an emergency medical technician now. Mm -hmm. And he got certified. He said that a lot of the time when he was traveling with working EMTs in ambulances or when he was in the emergency room, Mm -hmm. a lot of what they experience is simply the unpleasant aesthetics that come with people bleeding or throwing up or otherwise um, just suffering. But they are often not in a position where the EMT is called upon one to save their life or could even potentially do greater damage. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're still able to, uh, in theory anyway, know how to effect a a more serious rescue, but a lot of times they're just dealing with people in an extreme situation, and sometimes you just have to understand that is really unpleasant to be around, and they have to accept that on a daily basis. See, and, oh man, just to think about that, and I'm wondering, you know, kind of like what we were talking about before with EMTs and paramedics, like what do they feel on that first time, and then how do they feel on that last time, that desensitization desensitization yes (laughs) uh i it's so unreal that something like that can happen in such a traumatic way you know it's you're being so desensitized to all this mess and horror and suffering and Oh man, I <laughs> I don't know. They talk about it. I mean, yeah. I I obviously that's not a an attractive part of the job. No. But I think that the people who put themselves in that position uh, have some sort of internal strength mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I think that's true of Tommy. I think I told you the story one time when he was actually in an EMT class mm-hmm. and he was taking a break and his girlfriend met him out front. They were just having a conversation and up the block, uh, some individual was 
effectively beating a woman. Well, Tommy, without even thinking about it, went up and put the offender, the assailant, in a headlock and brought him to the ground and then had a conversation with him in which he explained that uh, he would be willing to let the individual up if he agreed to walk away and cause no more problems. He just had him in such control that he could have that conversation with him. And so the guy agreed, and then he walked away. Well, who knows what happened after that, except that Tommy, in that moment, was able to act in a situation where I think most people would Mm -hmm. view it with horror, certainly not consider getting personally involved. Right. They might call 911 on their cell phone, something like that. But, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that Tommy was able to act in the moment and act really efficiently and successfully to subdue the person who was effectively uh, injuring this woman, but um, without really thinking about it because he had the capacity and knew he had it, um, that seems to me maybe to define the kind of person who goes after that kind of job. Does this kind of thing. Yeah. It's all about the confidence of it, it sounds like. Well, you know, he and I have not had a conversation about that mm-hmm. because, you know, I might call it humility okay, on yeah. his part that he didn't characterize his action as being brave. Or heroic in any way. No. Yeah. But from the outside oh, that's exactly yeah. what it looks like oh yeah that this entire time in my head that's what i've been thinking yeah um and so uh, when i think about what you guys do at the pool where you mm-hmm. prepare to be able to step in in a situation where an individual is in perhaps the most extreme situation they'll ever find themselves in their life where they might in fact die. Mm -hmm. And you uh, say, I'm willing, I'm willing to go in there and do everything within my power to make sure that that person stays alive and if possible, healthy, you know? (laughs) That sounds, that begins to sound like heroism to me. <laughs> wow, that's that's one way to put lifeguards. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of confidence in what you know in order to be able to do this kind of thing. You know, I mean, right. lifeguarding aside completely, just EMTs, firefighters, police for that matter. I mean, they go through so much training, significantly more than lifeguards do. And I'm certain that the confidence that this constant repetition of what you need to be doing and how to do it allows them the ability to stop thinking logically. Well, <laughs> well, hold well, on. Let me, let me finish this statement and see okay, if it makes sense. Yeah, okay, good. Stop thinking logically and only think in terms of their training that they've had. Well, that makes sense. Don't you try to absorb absorb that information so that it's all second nature. It's mm-hmm. essentially intuition. 
somehow. You don't. I think that's what happened with Tommy when he yeah. took this guy down. Well, he knows some martial art. Was it Taekwondo? I have no idea. He was able to use gravity and the person's own motions to subdue the man. Yeah. You know, and he didn't have to think, I know that the man's momentum as he moves forward is going to tip his center of balance in some way so that he'll be almost falling. And while he's falling, I grab him and I make him pivot in such a way that he's now going to be on the ground. You know, I mean, that's great, but I'm sure he didn't think that. He already knew it. Yeah. Just like you start understanding something about the amount of pressure mm-hmm. that you must uh, place on an individual's chest right. if they <laughs> seem to be drowning and you are trying to clear their airway, mm-hmm. you're trying to get their musculature to respond to you, there is a lot of sensory information that you can access mm-hmm. without thinking about it because how could you think about it in those moments really that's why you train so much right absolutely yeah is you know exactly for it to be second nature because the last thing that we want is you know mistakes especially in such a high stake situation oh man yeah and so i mean the more i think about it the uh i understand that there is absolutely kind of a logic pyramid when it comes to this kind of thing, because especially with my training, for example, um, when I start at a victim, I start this kind of flow chart from the top and Uh, wait a minute. Now this is when you're training. Mm -hmm. So this is training that goes into a real life scenario. Okay. But when you say a flow chart, start me at the beginning. (laughs) What are, what is How does actually, it flow? Yeah, and, and you're not actually making a chart. This is in your mind? Yeah. Okay, This is, this is This is how I'm going to visualize it so ah, I can okay. speak it in words. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it starts with your primary assessment is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first part. That's going to be putting on gloves or personal protective equipment called PPE. Um, and then identifying what's going on in the scenario, you have to think about, uh, what's going on. Is the scene safe? Can you even bother going into the scene? How many people, uh, are there any signs of something that has happened? Is there any evidence? Are there any, is there anybody else around who can help? And so within seconds, you have to think about all of this. Right. And so as you approach the victim, uh, this is where the flow chart starts to split. And so you assess the victim's consciousness first. So you're going to what we call tap, shout, tap. Okay. Tap, shout, tap. Now, the person seems to be awake. Their eyes are open. They seem to be responding. So So what's the tap and the shout? So in this scenario, usually they're on the ground. It looks like they're going to be or are unconscious in some capacity yeah um if they're conscious then they we have the ability to ask them what happened Mm -hmm. uh what's going on where does it hurt and we go through something called sample 
which goes into secondary assessment. Uh, sample stands for signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, P, past pertinent medical history, last if oral intake, right. yeah, and then events leading up to. And these will give us the evidence that we'll need in order to effectively deal with the situation. And that's if they're conscious. If they, and that's where that flow chart kind of splits off to that side. Right. But if they are unconscious yep. and you are on your own in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, unless obviously there's other people, but sure. Um, in that situation, they're unconscious. It would flow towards um, getting an AED, getting 911 on the scene, getting all the materials that you need. And then from there, you're going to identify uh, their pulse and their breathing. So, and there's two ways that this flow chart breaks even more, in which case they're, they have a pulse, but they're not breathing, where we would go into what you saw Marcos training, that respiratory stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we call that emergency breathing, where essentially we breathe for the victim. Right. Um, and so that's where that flow chart kind of stops and then two minutes reassess and then you just keep on going till something else happens or EMS arrives. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the other part of that flow chart is if there's no pulse, in which case we would go right into CPR starting with compressions. Um, yeah, it's this whole thing. Um, and so then we're doing that if the breaths that we try to give the victim after 30 compressions don't go through, then we have to go into another part of this flow chart. Wow. Yeah. Is that like readjusting their neck or something then? To... So, yeah, it, it, it is actually. Wow. Um, so if our first breath doesn't go through because we're supposed to give two, if our first breath doesn't go through, we need to readjust the head, reopen the airway, mm, yeah. try it again. Uh, if the second breath doesn't go through, then we have to assume that something is blocking the airway. Oh, and no. now, now we've gone from regular CPR into CPR with airway obstruction. Like their tongue is somehow down their throat or some horrible thing like that? It's possible It's possible that uh, the reason that they're unconscious with no pulse is because of this airway blockage. Yeah. And, you know, there's just, we don't know anything until it's over. And so we do regular CPR, compressions, and then we have to check the mouth and make sure that nothing's in there, retry the breaths, and... Then it's just this whole thing, and and this uh, is this is Noah's poolside. This oh no. is any time, absolutely any time. My certificate, and a lot of people make well, fun of me for this. Well, tell me about <laughs> it. So when I say, "Don't worry, I'm a lifeguard." Yeah, people always come back with the wittiest quip of, All "Oh, time. but there's no water around." <laughs> yeah, and all I can think is. Uh oh. Whoa. Mayday. Mayday. <laughs> oh, it's not a sales call, everybody. It's not a sales it's call. It's not a sales call. I think <laughs> people may never hear this because it's going to be edited out. 
Probably. Oh, Do you think? Tragic. I don't know. I, I feel mean, like that, that it, it allows us to be more human. Uh, more okay. Human. So you would vote for having <laughs> that little disruption remain just because it adds a, a, a certain spice. After we publish this episode, I think we should let the the, the fans no. tell us. What they... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we keep it in, everybody, or should we cut it out? Well, let tell me... us what you think. Email us. I just hope that we haven't disrupted the flow of the conversation because you were in the midst of telling me uh, how people, one, react to you and say, oh. There's no water around, so you being a lifeguard is absolutely irrelevant. I can't help us. Okay, but what you're making the point that they're wrong about that, and I think we Mm -hmm. are starting to understand why, because you can do CPR even if you're not poolside. But go ahead, tell me what you were about to say before that that interruption. Well, I mean, you you said it just then. I mean, it's... I don't need to be poolside. I don't no. need to be in the water. Yeah. Lifeguards and how we're trained, we can be out of water and still effectively be a lifeguard. And I know a lot of people use it as a joke. Uh, <laughs> where, oh, we're not in water, so how are you really going to help me? But I think there are some people who believe that lifeguards can't do anything outside of a pool. And well, I've never thought about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I know that I think of lifeguards in that context alone. Yeah, that I, is, there's uh, lanes, water. it's a pool, or maybe we're at the beach, and mm-hmm. uh, that person's sitting on some kind of tower watching the waves, <laughs> and we'll go dashing into the water. Yeah, but of course, you know, you take the water away. People might very well still need to uh, be ministered to with CPR. Yeah. Uh, I've been hired a couple times by um, this event company called Events Unlimited. Okay. Where they've hired me as a lifeguard, but I was also the medical staff at the time. Ah. And so what had happened, this was... (laughs) The first time they hired me, second time? First time, I think. First time they hired me, I was hired to lifeguard the kiddie boat ride. The kiddie boat ride yeah. at the county fair no, or something? No, it was a, some engineering company was having like a company picnic that they were hired to deal with. And, and there were portable rides. Yeah, and okay. so they had this like inflatable wading pool. Yes. Um, it didn't go, it went just below my knees. That was about how deep it was. Okay. Um, and it wasn't allowed for kids over like four feet. Right. Um, and then they would put a life jacket on them and then they would put them in a boat and they would just kind of like paddle around in this tiny little wading pool. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to be the lifeguard for it. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> seems so, ridiculous on its face because mm-hmm. it's like three feet of water. Everybody's in very close proximity. Yeah, but, but. fragile young bodies, mm-hmm. where too much pressure could be damaging to the individual, 
in a flash, the situation could change. Someone's out of their little boat mm-hmm. and floundering in the water and then becomes unresponsive. Who is responsible at that point? Me. As the highest certified person yeah. in that situation. And I'm pretty sure throughout that whole thing, um, it would would it would have been my responsibility to respond effectively. Right. Um, and so I might not be EMT level, but I'm higher certified than standard uh, what we call layperson or yes workers yeah. CPR, um, and which is what I'm assuming most of those people were, if at all. And so the responsibility in that situation would have landed on me. And I know I was there for insurance reasons only. Maybe so, but in your own self-assessment, I'm guessing here that you knew yourself to be competent. Is that right? I mean, you weren't in some sort of quandary, oh my God, what if something really happens here? How were you thinking about your Responsibility, which I, knowing you, know you were taking seriously. Were you in some kind of doubt about your capacity, or did you feel, I got this? Well, I felt like the risk wasn't super high. There, yeah. were, there weren't a lot of high-risk things at this event right. anyways. Yeah. And so I was fairly relaxed, but, you know, there's always caution with what you do. I mean, whatever... You know, people out there always have caution, always be safe in what you're doing. But if the situation did arise, I would have to kick myself into a certain gear to deal with that. And I don't know if I'm going to be prepared for it unless it happens, you know? Mm. And so that's, that's something that anybody in any situation has to deal with. They can assume at any point how competent they are or what they're thinking and they can go through this whole process in their head but until it finally happens there's there's absolutely no way to know <laughs> yeah the moment of truth mm-hmm. uh, and this has this is somehow peripherally on topic <laughs> i was watching a video of a guy on mike you know he's a disc jockey Okay, yeah. And he was riffing with his partner. I guess they do a morning show together. And I was watching the way he was acting. And he was gesturing and he was smiling and he was talking and he knew exactly what to say. Uh, He had the word flow going. And it was like, I know, I can do that too. Yeah. And so I felt a kind of connection to the individual just because of that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if... Um, you feel something similar uh, about something far more important in life, which is that you know that you can slip into this this intuitive state where you actually can access a huge amount of information about how to save a life. It's... uh... Well, and once I've never really been in a situation where that's actually happened. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, I mean, I've made rescues in water, but I, Mm -hmm. you know, stakes are pretty low. 
Or at least I'm so confident in what I do that I thought the stakes were so low. <laughs> but but I, you pulled them out and you did yeah, it right. And we didn't have to go any further than that. I've never I've never done CPR wow. uh, on an yeah. actual person. Um, I've never really done anything outside of standard first aid and my lifeguard skills. That is so, so <laughs> fascinating. You know, people talk. You don't know what it's like when you're under fire, like if you're in a war zone or yeah. something, in a firefight, and people say time slows down and you can see everything very clearly. I wonder if it isn't like that if you are actually having to give yeah. artificial respiration to someone who could die and you. Uh, calm yourself and you have a clarity that you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, I was never in a firefight. I was in Vietnam, but I was in the rear area. And the one time that we were hit, mm -hmm. we seemed to have incoming rounds coming into the base where I was stationed. All I felt was fear. Yeah. You know, I was just afraid. So I don't really know what it's like if you're really out in the field, let's say, mm -hmm. and trying to protect yourself in a, in a really dangerous situation. In some way, I think they're similar because that's a person in extremis. Oh, yeah. Really. An extreme circumstance and situation which you have to deal with something very quickly. Yeah, man. And it's, oh, you know, I really hope I don't have to do it really well that's honestly. rational i mean that yeah. makes perfect why would you say i gotta know if i'm a hero or not wow that's i why, can't wait for yeah. someone's heart to give out that's so why I in my case i want to really be in a firefight because yeah. i want to know how it feels no i actually do not want to know mm -hmm. how it feels you know and 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 that seems like one, I don't know. I want. I was going to say it's a more honest position. I can't speak about it in terms of what's honest or not. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, the rational position is I would just as soon not be put in that situation. You know. Ideally, that's what's. Well, that's you what's train. Yeah. You train for competency to the extent you can, mm -hmm. so that you can meet the standard that you have set yourself right and and that's just plain responsible behavior on anyone's part train to the standard test yeah. the objective ah, ah yeah it all comes around all right this has been a a big long episode for y'all an extra five minutes of good quips and wit yes yes <laughs> I, I like the way you put that i think that's what it was for Thank sure you. and that's an objective uh, point of view there so well my name is Jim Newman. I'm Aiden DeBoard. This and has been... Inherently Human, episode 24. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you in episode 25. Yeah, really appreciate it.